good news is not simply the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The good news is the result of his death and resurrection. That's really the good news. The result of his death and resurrection, but not only his death and resurrection, but also his life, his teachings, his enthronement at the right hand of the Father. It includes God's intention from the beginning of creation to also his provision at the end and the destruction of his creation. It includes Christ's birth as much as his death. What is the gospel message? This is Nita Erlene, and you are listening to the TRC Ministries podcast. Today, Tori Bjorklund, president of TRC Ministries, continues his teaching on what's so great about salvation by walking us through a definition of the gospel that encompasses all of the passages referencing gospel in the New Testament, and that helps us understand that the love that Jesus Christ has for us is the same love that God the Father has for us. Here is Tori with What's So Great About Salvation, Part 3. We've been talking about salvation. So I asked everybody to go through the Bible and uh, search out the word gospel and find the context of it and ask a few different questions like, whose gospel is it? Is the person speaking, is it their gospel or somebody else's gospel? Are they being a messenger for somebody else? What is the message that they're giving and, and so forth? So anybody just want to share any um, interesting things that they encountered inductive study? Marlene, for the sake of those that might be listening to this, the gospel is greater and wider than what most people would think. Yeah. I like that. I want to try to repeat that. The gospel has more to do with Jesus Christ and who he is than a system of doctrine. Yeah, I agree. So what is the gospel? So when we ask that, typically what we do is we provide a definition. So let me provide a definition. A message of good news sent by God. So this allows for any messenger, like uh, an angel or John the Baptist or Paul or Jesus, uh, and I believe in some cases the messenger even takes ownership of that message in the delivery. And you find that in Paul, for example, referring to his gospel. Did you, did you come across that? When Paul said twice, he said, it, according to my gospel. But with careful examination, you will likely see that they, in this case Paul, and the angel, others, are representing the message as having come from God. It's their gospel, it's theirs by assignment from God. Example of that is Romans 16, 25. You can see, see that if you want to look it up. So, the gospel is a message of good news sent by God. That's not very satisfying, though, is it? It's kind of, okay, so we have a definition, but that's doesn't really address like what Jean was saying or what Marlene was saying. And so when we ask the question, what is the gospel? We are implying something as the speaker. What we are implying is what is the good news that the message brings? That's what we most often mean when we ask, what is the gospel? And uh, this is really where that question, what is the gospel, intersects with our topic of salvation. So we often use a phrase, the gospel of salvation. Did anybody notice the gospel of salvation in those 99 instances, by the way? 
There's one time, it's 113 when, that, when the Bible uses that phrase, but it's not a very common, commonly put together. And that's one of the things that I wanted you to see, is that oftentimes when we think of the phrase, the gospel, we're thinking of a message of salvation. And in fact, it's interesting, if you Google what is the gospel, most of the entries you will see is the gospel of salvation, the gospel of salvation. What is the gospel of salvation? I mean, you see gospel of salvation over and over and over again in answer to that question. And in Western evangelical Christianity, I think we have been conditioned to think of only one message when we read the word gospel in the Bible. And so the reason I wanted us to do that inductive study was to see that that conditioning is not accurate. It doesn't get the breadth like Marlene was talking about. Now, some groups have decided, well, actually there's two gospels. And that is the gospel of the kingdom, which according to some is the millennial reign and the gospel of salvation, those two, two gospels. So I think it raises this question. Has God sent a single message with good news or has he sent several? And if there is more than one, are they related to each other? So again, I did this Google search. I love, I love doing Google searches. This is really interesting what you come across. So if you simply do a Google search using the question, just exactly say, what is the gospel? Just stick that into Google. You'll find typical responses and an explanation of the gospel of salvation. That's what you'll see mostly. Now, Bible.org has a really good article, I think. It goes into the, what the word means and the usage and throughout the Bible and, and that sort of a thing. And they articulate this common response of the gospel of salvation. And in it, they quote Wycliffe Bible in, Encyclopedia as saying, the central truth of the gospel is that God has provided a way of salvation for men through the gift of his son to the world. So the central truth of the gospel is that God has provided a way of salvation for men through the gift of his son to the world. So my question to you, if you read those 90-some passages, did you get that as the primary central truth of the gospel, the use of that term? Well, there's no question, of course, that, that this is a truth of the gospel, of the gospel message in the Bible, right? There's a great example of that in Paul's words in uh, Corinthians. And he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. And here Paul really is referring to the gospel earlier uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1. He's referring to the gospel which he preached to the church in Corinth, to the Corinthian people. He even says that this is of first importance. Did you pick up on that? He said this is of first importance. And in a sense, one could say then that Paul is making it the central truth. And so I, I understand why that conclusion is reached and, and why that is purportedly the central truth of the gospel. Yet, if we're to believe that this is the complete message of the good news coming from God, that's the definition of gospel. And we're left with some difficult passages to explain. If you replace the phrase, the gospel, for example, in the Bible, with death and burial, 
death, burial, and resurrection. That's what Paul just laid out there, those three things. So if you replace that with death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you will find it difficult to make sense of some of those passages. So either that's one of the Gospels, and there's many Gospels, or that's not the central overarching truth of a single Gospel. So that's what we're, that's what we're faced with. So to make sense of some of those passages where the Bible uses the gospel, we must realize that it was used to mean something more than the truth of Christ's death and resurrection, or else there's more than one gospel. For example, let's take a look at some of these. Matthew 4.23, we have Jesus going throughout Galilee, Marlene mentioned this, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the... Now surely his death and resurrection was not the central topic of his preaching. In fact, we are told what his central topic is. What, what was it? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, he's, he's talking about the kingdom anyway. That's the kingdom is the central message of his gospel. And like I say, some people say, well, that's, that's a different gospel than the gospel of salvation. And, and I, I hope to address that here in a bit. Again in Matthew, Matthew 11:5, and twice you'll find this in Luke as well, Jesus was referencing Isaiah 61. So you might remember in Luke 4, I think it is, where Jesus was in his hometown and he was handed the scroll from Isaiah. And, you know, they're, they're like, hey, you're in your local town here and you're an itinerant preacher. Why don't you come up and give us a good word? And they handed him the scroll and he read from uh, Isaiah 61. And he said he is preaching the gospel to the poor. In another place, you might remember John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus and said, are you the one or should I be looking for somebody else? Now, Jesus, he didn't say yes or no, did he? He said to John's disciples, go tell John what you see happening here. And then he quotes from Isaiah 61. And one of the things that he quotes is that the, that the gospel is being preached to the poor. So what do you think the poor are going to do with the news of Jesus' death and resurrection? Now, Jesus, by the way, he did foretell his death and resurrection at times. But who did he tell that to? To his disciples. When he spoke of his death and resurrection to people that weren't in that tight-knit group of his disciples, how did he do it? He did it in very obscure ways. He said, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. You remember that? He said that? By the way, when, the, when he was teaching, the uh, scribes and Pharisees came to him and said, what authority do you have and what sign will you show us that you have authority to be teaching these things? And he said, what? Tear down this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. They obviously did not realize that he was talking about his death and resurrection. So when he did speak about his death and resurrection, it was always in cloaked terms to the masses. When he spoke about the kingdom, he tried to make it very clear. You remember, the kingdom is like this. The kingdom is like this. The kingdom is like this. Over and over and over again, he hammered on that idea the kingdom. So I think that Jesus was not preaching about his death and resurrection although he did allude to it on occasion. But he was preaching about the kingdom of God. And this was the gospel that he preached. Now in his letter to the Galatian church, Paul tells us that the gospel was also preached to Abraham. Did you pick up on that? Did you see that one? So that's in Galatians 3.8. 
Now it's clear that he was not directly referencing the death and resurrection of Christ, but instead, anybody remember what was the gospel that was preached to Abraham? From his seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's a, that was a gospel. So it's clear that he wasn't directly referencing the death and resurrection of Christ, but instead the blessing of all the nations. Now, of course, what? It was the death and resurrection of Christ that made this possible. And certainly God, as we know, had this in his mind. But this isn't what he was preaching. He was preaching the blessing of God on all the nations of the world. I would assert here that insisting on Christ's death and resurrection as the entire message gospel replaces the end with the means. Let me say that again. Insisting that the death and resurrection of Christ as the primary or single message of the gospel replaces the end with the means. You can say, you say go for it. I want to try to repeat that because I think that's a really good comment, Marvin, that the gospel, like any other word, is used in can we say different contexts? And so it was just a word and it meant good news. And there could have been good news that, that Lazarus was raised from the dead, that somebody delivered to friends or family of Lazarus. And that's not necessarily a problem that it was used in different ways unless we're chose a different meaning than what the way in which it was being used. And that, that is my main point. I think when we read this, Oftentimes, we are thinking the gospel at that point is meaning the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet, we know that that wasn't the case of what was preached to Abraham, for example, or what Jesus was preaching as the gospel. And so when we think about that word and how it's used, this goes back to this difficulty of communication, what I want us to realize is that there are implications in the way it's being used at that point and in that context. And if we miss those implications, we're missing the message of what's be, what is good news at that time. It could be that somebody was healed or raised from the dead or something like that. And this, to me, is the real question. What is this good news in these contexts, in these 99 contexts? And the one question that I want to ask is, rather than trying to impose a single death and resurrection of Christ because it doesn't fit, do we have multiple good newses that each one is just speaking about an instance of good news as a message from God, for example? Or is there an overarching eternal and universal good news that fits in every case of the use of that as a message of good news from God? I mean, it's a perfectly good word to use in other contexts, but interestingly, if you went through every single one of those instances where it's translated as gospel using a concordance, in every case it was referring to a good news, a message from God, from somebody else. So it's not that it wasn't used in other ways in those days. It probably was. It was just a normal word, and it wasn't a religious word necessarily, but it was sort of co-opted by the early Christians and used in that way. So interestingly, if you go through that, it was not used in just a general, like, good news to Mary and Martha or something like that, at least in the translations that we have, if you use a, our translation. But Marvin, your point is exactly what I want us to realize, 
is that when we're looking at these words, and we have many of them, doesn't, it doesn't have to be gospel, we have many of them, that we have a connotation that we add to it, an inference that we add to it that wasn't necessarily intended. And it completely skews that particular passage when we try to impose this meaning, death and resurrection of Christ, for example, onto that word. Because it's just a word. Absolutely. It's being used in a, in a particular way. And we need, if we're going to take seriously the Bible, we need to take seriously what it's actually meaning to say at that particular instance. Let me go back to this. Because uh, I, I had said that this idea of saying, of pr trying to inject that into every instance of the use of that word, is because I think that we have changed the means. We've replaced the end with the means. What, what do I mean by that? And here's, here's, let me say this. The good news is not simply the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The good news is the result of his death and resurrection. That's really the good news. The result of his death and resurrection, but not only his death and resurrection, but also his life, his teachings his enthronement at the right hand of the Father. It includes God's intention from the beginning of creation to also his provision at the end and the destruction of his creation. It includes Christ's birth as much as his death. So when we do this inductive study, when we go through the, through the scriptures and look at how that word is being used, we learn that the word gospel was used to represent many instances of good news from God. And some of those messages were proclaimed by men, some by angels, and some like the one you mentioned, Dave, are even sometimes difficult for us to understand how that could even be good news. I mean, if you're on the wrong side of the judgment of God, it's not a really good news. It's not really good news to hear that God's, the time of God's judgment has come. But interestingly, the gospel of Jesus, so now if you take that, I did 24 times where you find the gospel of Jesus or gospel of the Lord or the gospel of Christ. In the New Testament, interestingly, at times it insists on obedience. That's something that you'll find sort of clashing sometimes with people's teaching of the gospel. So if you look in 2 Thessalonians, for example, 1.8, 1 Peter 4.17, both Paul and Peter said that this refers to the obedience to the gospel. So that's an interesting thought. What is the obedience to the gospel? This one, uh, Dave, that you mentioned in Revelation 14, coming from the angel. That, what was this eternal gospel? It started with an admonition, didn't it? Do you remember that? Fear God, give him glory. Because. Fear God, give him glory because the time of God's judgment is at hand. Oh, and worship him. There's the third one. I missed that one. So this is sometimes, I, I guess, kind of flies in the face at times with what we will often preach as the gospel, and I've heard this insistence, there is nothing for us to do, it is all done by Christ. Well, there's a point to that, and I don't want to diminish that, and I don't want to put a gospel of works on us, or a pay, buy now, you know, save now, pay later approach, but the thing that I want to do is to point out that as we are fashioning our understanding of what the Bible has to say about the good news that is coming from God, we need to make sure that we're taking the entire Bible and its use of that into account 
when we fashion what is that message of good news coming from God so does the Bible have a single a single message or is it multiple that to me I think is really what's in front of us and I'll just tell you flat out I believe that the Bible does have a single gospel it has a single gospel that unifies all of the messages that we see that are coming as good news from God I would say probably a more accurate way of saying that is that the, all the good news coming from God has a single theme so there are specific instances where there's an aspect of good news I think you mentioned that Dave was that there were different aspects of the same good news so I think there's a main message or what you might say a main theme it might have several subheadings but they can be contained in the same theme so it has contains several instances the Bible does of specific messages of good news each of which contain the same so what is this theme I think if we were to try to unify all of these messages I think that the multitude of angels that appeared to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem summed it up pretty well do you remember what they said this is when they broke out into song and multitudes of angels what did they say Luke 2 13 and 14 suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests so God the glorious has good will toward men this to me is the overarching message of every one of the instances of good news that comes toward men it's been proclaimed in many ways by many people and most importantly by Jesus himself and this is where I think you remember Hebrews 1 it starts off you know in the past God spoke many different ways remember that through the prophets etc but now he has spoken through Jesus Christ when Jesus taught the kingdom of God was within reach was available to the poor and the persecuted I believe he was proclaiming the same gospel that Paul preached to the Gentiles and I reject the notion that Jesus did not preach the gospel of salvation I believe that Jesus preached the gospel of salvation Jesus did preach the gospel of salvation the message of the gospel of salvation was preached by Jesus Christ the words that he used were what the kingdom of God is available to you it's right here within your grasp now we know and he tried to explain to his disciples before it happened the means by which God would make the kingdom of God available to man to the poor and the person but nonetheless what Jesus was preaching was the gospel of salvation it's not the means that makes it the good news it's the availability of entering into the kingdom the rule and reign of the glorious God who has good will towards you and understanding the message of this gospel I think is very important and the focus of it and that the intent of it I think is very important and why I'll go back to what I started with early on that quote from Dallas Willard 
What we do or do not understand in any area of our life determines what we can or cannot believe. You cannot believe a blur or a blank. And if we're to have faith in the gospel message, if we're to have faith in the gospel message, we must be very clear about what that message is. And I think this is the crux of the issue that I want to raise regarding the gospel. Now, Paul tells us that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that's Romans 4.3. We've already seen that Paul said that the gospel was preached to Abraham, right, in Galatians 3.8. What was it that was preached to Abraham? And we, we pointed out, Paul said the specific good news that was, was that all the nations would be blessed through the seed of Abraham, okay? Abraham believed God, what, regarding what? Do you remember that? Where it actually says in Genesis 22, 18 that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness? What did he believe about? That he would have a son, that he would have an heir by his own body. Okay? So Abraham was told by God that he would have an heir, somebody who would inherit everything from his household and who would inherit his promise. It was after Abraham obeyed God and was ready to sacrifice this son that God had given him that God said, because you have done this, all the nations will be blessed through your seed. And this combination here shows us, and also the commentary from the writer of Hebrews, was that Abraham was willing to believe the one thing that God told him explicitly, that he would have an heir that would be his inheritance and that would carry that blessing of Abraham and this promise to all the nations in the world, that his descendants would be like the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore, right? This is what Abraham believed. So at the point when he was asked to sacrifice Isaac, what do you think he had to be thinking? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us what he had to be thinking was, well, I'm not quite sure how this is going to fit in, but even if God has to raise him from the dead, he's going to be faithful to his word. You see, what Abraham believed was that God was trustworthy, could be counted upon to carry out what he said. The information that we have today exceeds the information that Abraham had. Abraham didn't know about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ at the time that he was faced with this test of faith. But he knew one thing, that God had promised him an heir and that he would have descendants that were as numerous as the, the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. And he believed that, that no matter whatever the circumstances looked like, he could trust that God would carry out what he said. So I believe that Abraham's confidence and where his faith is was in the good news that God was for him, that God had seen his situation, that God intended to bless him and not only him, but all of the nations in the world. And Abraham believed that. That was good news to Abraham. But that was the same good news that was preached to the shepherds, that the angels brought to the shepherds. 
He believed that God would do as he said, even if he had to raise the dead, because he believed the basic gospel message that God had goodwill toward him. His faith was in the character and the nature of God. Of course, the ability of God to raise the dead, as we're told in, in Hebrews. We'll get a chance to talk much more about faith here com coming up. But the point that I want to leave you with today is that the central gospel message is this. God so loved the world. Or God demonstrated his own love towards us. Or God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Or God our Father who has loved us. Or in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. To him who loves us. Now, you might be familiar with those verses I was just quoting, and you might know what comes after them. Do you remember? Okay, we can, we can start with John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Okay? God so loved the world is the main message. How he executed on that love, how he showed that love. Well, let's take, take Romans 5.8, for example. God, what, demonstrates his own love towards us in that, while we were yet sinners, right, Christ died. What's the topic here? The love of God. You could go through the rest of these. God, our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. In this is his love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That's in Revelation 1.5, if you're not familiar with that one. The central truth of the gospel is that God loves us. The good news is that God loves us. Now, there's a great number of professing Christians that don't really even believe that God loves them. They are in a continuous cringe, waiting for God to punish them for not measuring up. What was the phrase that you mentioned this morning? about fear, being in a continual covert state of alarm. I like that phrase. So this continuous cringe, maybe you've been part of that, maybe you've seen that. I myself have sometimes fall prey to that. And you know, it stands in the way of me wanting sometimes to release everything I have to God, to be available to do His will. Why? Well. You know, what if he wants me to do something that's not very good or very fun or very satisfying to me or very whatever? I have these ideas about God that literally demean God. And I think that it doesn't help when the common evangelical gospel depicts Christ as absorbing the wrath of God directed at us. One of the articles I came across in searching what is the gospel, a man by the name Dr. Jack Arnold said this succinctly, God took out his wrath on Christ instead of on sinners. I remember seeing a little track when I was in grade school. You might remember one like this where, you know, when God looks down, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus, in the, and there was a little umbrella with a picture of Jesus on the top of it, and God looking down at this little kid holding the umbrella. But in, in there, there was the idea before that was that Jesus was protecting this child from the hand of God. But you see, if our concept of the gospel of salvation will, will ascribe a different bent towards us to God the Father than what Jesus the Son had, then we've missed the point of the scriptures that says that Jesus was the exact representation 
of God the Father. Remember, Philip said, show us the Father. What did he say? I, I've been with you this long, and you haven't figured out. When you see me, you see the Father. Now, you know, there is a point to the judgment of God. And I want, to, I want to be clear here that the adversaries of God should have a terrifying expectation of judgment, as it says in Hebrews. But it won't be for lack of love on God's part. And the sinner who falls into the hands of God will find him as David did. Do you remember that? Do you remember the story where God came to David and said, this was after he, he took a census, and God said, you shouldn't have done that, and I need to fulfill, remember I said not to do that, and I need to be true to my word, and there's going to be some consequence for this. But I'll let you choose. He gave him three options. Those three options, let's see, to be chased by his enemies for three years. Was it famine? For, I don't remember the time frame. But then there was, what, three days at the hands of God. And if you read that, you'll find this in 2 Samuel 24. And you remember what happened? There was pestilence. There was that the judgment of God. And it says that there was an angel. He was, he was in Jerusalem. And he was, he, he was ready to continue the execution of the judgment of God. And God stayed him. He said, wait, stop. That's enough. I can't take it anymore. Basically is what God said there. I have relented of what I intended to do here. I can't even follow through on that because God was reluctant to execute that judgment. I think we have a view of gospel that disparages God, that minimizes the main point of the gospel and emphasizes the other than the end. The good news is that God loves us and that love of God compelled him to devise and execute a plan in concert with his son who carried out that plan to bring us into his good intention and that intention is the two for which we have been saved remember I asked the question from what have we been saved and to what have we been saved and it is God's good intention that defines the two for which we have been saved so I want to take next week and look at God's intention for us in salvation and I'll tell you, interestingly, my first quote will be from John Piper. He and I are, there's no distance between us in regards to this topic. And I love his article that I'll, I'll share a link with that. But this idea that God has good intent towards us is what you will find. If you go back and read all of those messages, even the one that, Dave, you were seeing there with the revelation of, that the angel was in mid-heaven proclaiming, even in the midst of judgment, God finds himself regretful that it has to come to that. You see him re representing that over and over again. He's regretful that it has to come to that because his enemies refuse to allow him to rule over them is why it comes to that. I want to pray and then we'll end here. God, I want to thank you for your good intent toward us. I want to thank you that you have demonstrated your love. And it is an amazing thing. And you have communicated so much more about your intent for us 
then we oftentimes acknowledge. And I pray that that intention would become first and foremost in our minds throughout this week, that we would just be caught up in joy over what you intend, that we would see that everything that comes down from the Father of Lights is good. And align ourselves with that goodness that you intend for us, which includes new life, new birth, and fellowship with you and your Son. Thank you for that invitation. Thank you for the initiative that you took to bring us into that and help us to fulfill that intention as far as it depends upon us. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. Our vision at TRC Ministries is to see individuals fulfill their calling under the authority of the church using the resources of the kingdom of God. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And for more information on TRC Ministries or to contact us, go to www.regenerationcenter.org.